Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to email us and let us know what God is currently doing in your life. Or if you'd like to support the ministry financially, you can do so here on our website. For now, we hope you enjoy this message. Thanks for tuning in today. You can all, if you do have a Bible, if you have a phone, if you have a laptop, whatever you have, and you want to open your Bible to Luke, the first chapter. Luke's gospel, the first chapter. Hallelujah. We're going to begin there this morning. And it's amazing how God is so gracious to, and sometimes it's a challenge to hear what the Spirit wants to, you know, to, to, uh, for you to share. Because everything, uh, everything when it comes to God uh, must be in His timing. And uh, so this morning, I, uh, the title of this message is called Repentance, the Latter Days Gospel. Repentance, the Latter Days Gospel. Very interesting. Amen. Now, Luke, the first chapter, um, we're going to begin there, but let me just begin by saying four weeks from now, we're going to be celebrating the, the greatest supernatural event in human history, and that is the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the um, the second person of the Godhead becoming flesh for us and living this life for us. Hallelujah. So here in Luke's gospel, listen, prophetic preparations were being made for that very uh, event, that divine event. And I'm going to read verse 5, and I'm going to do it out of the living Bible uh, because of the fact it's, it's, it just says it easier for us to understand what he meant, Luke, when he wrote this. My story begins with a Jewish priest, Zacharias, who lived when Herod was king of Judea. Zechariah was a uh, member of the Abijah division of the temple service corps. I mean, he, he, he served in the temple, had specific duties in the temple, okay? His wife, Elizabeth, was, like himself, a member of the priest tribe of the Jews, a descendant of Aaron. So she came, her descendant, her uh, lineage goes all the way back to Aaron. Aaron, of course, was the high priest uh, of Israel when they came out of Egypt, okay? Now let's read verse um, let me get there in my Bible. Forgive me, I didn't turn there. In Luke's Gospel, the King, the King James, uh, I'll read that and then we'll go on from there. Thank you, Lord. It says in verse 6, it says, and, uh, yeah, what, what am I, verse 5, okay, let me read, start with verse 5 again. There, this is King James. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah and of the course of Abiah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the, and the ordinance of the Lord blameless. The Message Bible says it this way. Together they lived honorably before God, careful in keeping to the ways of the commandments and enjoying a clear conscience before God. Isn't that good? Enjoying a clear conscience before God. So I wrote this in the side of my Bible years ago. This was the spiritual atmosphere for miracles, uh, being what? That they honored God, kept his word, and enjoyed a clear conscience before him. And even though they did all these things, there was at least one significant unanswered prayer that they literally had, had prayed for most of their life until, of course, uh, now let me make a point of this in a moment. The Bible says one prayer is that they were childless. They could not bear children because Elizabeth, the Bible says, was barren. And neither was side on their time, or time, neither was time on their side because verse 7 goes on to say that they um, were both now well stricken in years. Now, I believe with all my heart, when, um, as we'll go on, you'll, you'll discover that Zechariah was praying, okay? And I believe with all my heart that they had come to accept the fact that this specific prayer 
would go unanswered, meaning having a child. Why? Because now they're past, already past having the ability to even produce such a miracle on their own. So I'm sure that they had set it aside. Why do I say that? Why? Because of what the angel had said to them after, they gave, after the angel gave uh, him and them the promise, or, or Zechariah, you'll see here in a moment, that uh, Zechariah didn't believe it. So I believe that they had set that aside, what, just because of the fact that, hey, we're, we're extremely old, and that which was once possible is no longer possible. The good news is that whatever God said prophetically, no matter how impossible, it becomes possible. Hallelujah. Amen. And so, uh, yet they yet never allowed this unanswered prayer to come between them and their total allegiance to God. Verse 13. Fear not, Zechariah, for... Um, Verse 8, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, and um, it says that uh, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense, okay? And um, when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense, and there was united prayer going on. And there appeared unto him, Zacharias, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Hallelujah. And thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt, uh, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, now watch this, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. How many want to be great in the sight of God? Amen. And the Bible says, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, watch this, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. I think it's amazing how we have such a challenge today mentally in the church that we have to have these discussions about what is right and what is wrong concerning drinking. I would way rather be filled with the Holy Ghost than have any kind of, uh, any kind of drink that this world can offer. I just don't understand why even the argument. I don't even understand why Christians think that way. And um, I, I don't get comfort from having a natural drink. I get comfort from the Holy Ghost when he's working in my life. Can I have an amen? Many, the Bible says, of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall before he shall before him that's Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How many believe that Jesus is coming back again? I just, uh, everything has always comes full circle. So what he wants or what he's looking for is a people that is prepared for his return. They're prepared themselves spiritually. Amen. So anyway, this was Isaiah's prophecy that he had spoken 730 years earlier. And here's the prophecy. I love this. Isaiah 40. It says, comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. That other translations, her warfare has ended. Her warfare has ended, okay? And that her iniquity is pardoned. That word pardon simply means the debt has been satisfied. Okay, let's go on. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When people read that thing, ah, yeah, bless God, she received double for her sin, double trouble. No, that doesn't mean that at all. What it actually means is because her sins are pardoned, she has received double, number one, forgiveness, and number two, spiritual restoration. Come on, raise your hand if you're so grateful that you've never received double from God what you really deserved. God in his love and mercy rather 
gave you, number one, the ability to be forgiven, and number two, spiritual restoration. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, this was John, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made straight. He was just simply saying, everybody who's prideful shall be brought low, everybody that's uh, uh, low shall be exalted. That's what he's saying there. All the things that are so messed up in life that are all crooked and messed up, he's going to make straight. <laughs> Good. I just love this. And um, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough places pl- uh, plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Amen. So this was God's message of repentance. That his people would awaken to the fact that he's speaking to them, and they would return unto him. Amen. Repentance. So 30 years after John's birth, he entered the ministry with a message and a mission. The message was repentance, and the mission was to water baptize everybody that would identify, identify with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Or, excuse me, they would identify later with him because he had not yet, he was just now, Jesus was going to be stepping into ministry um, to, to um, fulfill that ministry for three and a half years and then die on the cross. Now, the Passion Bible says this. He, John, will persuade many in Israel to convert and turn back to the Lord their God. Isn't that good? He will go before the Lord as a forerunner with the same power and anointing as Elijah the prophet. He will be instrumental in turning the hearts of the fathers in tenderness back to their children and the hearts of the uh, children, uh, the disobedient, back to the wisdom of their righteous fathers. The righteous fathers right there are speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what I thought was interesting was, the, I hope you're hanging here with me. Um, he says, he, shall, um, uh, he will be instrumental in turning the hearts of the fathers in tenderness back to their children. Do you remember the four divine virtues that are in every child? Lowly, loving, trusting, and forgiving. He said that's what he's going to do in the hearts of the fathers. They're literally going to turn back to the hearts of their children. Isn't that good? And, um, uh, and, And then he went on the hearts of the disobedient back to the wisdom of their righteous fathers, which is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, that's John, will prepare a united people who are ready for the Lord's appearing. And my question is, will we be? Amen. Now, in Mark, the first chapter, now if you'll go there, because now we look a little bit more in detail of John's ministry, okay? This is the Passion Bible. So Mark penned it, these words about John and his ministry. This is the beginning of the wonderful news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It starts with Isaiah the prophet, who wrote, listen, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. I love this. He is a thunderous voice. Hallelujah. And of one who shouts in the wilderness, what's he shouting? Prepare your hearts for the coming of the Lord, Yahweh, and clear a straight path inside your hearts for him. Now, John the baptizer was the messenger who appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the complete cancellation of sins. Now, a steady stream, I just love this, because God was moving on John's life with the anointing of Elijah. A steady stream of people came 
to be dipped in the Jordan River as they publicly confessed their sins. They came from all over southern Israel, including nearly all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, simply meaning there was a move of God and everybody was yielding to the move. Isn't that beautiful? See, people are, whether you think not, people are drawn to the anointing. They're drawn to the anointing. They want God. They want more of God. Hallelujah. How many want more of God in your life? You came, not seriously, you came here today and, and, and you came because the anointing is here to minister to you. So you came to receive that. Pastor Vicki was talking about the spirit of celebration and the spirit of expectation. You came today, but hopefully you came with a spirit of expectation because you just left a spirit of celebration, hallelujah, or came out of, praise the Lord. So the gospel of repentance, listen, this is, this is what the Lord said to me, the gospel of repentance preceded the gospel of salvation. Okay, listen to this, we cannot be released from our sins until we've been forgiven of our sins, and we can't be forgiven of our sins without heartfelt repentance. And today, I don't know, whatever, you know, uh, but I remember when we were young kids, she remembers more than me because she was raised in a full gospel church. There would be people coming to the altar weeping before God simply because they wanted more of God and they felt there was an inadequacy in your life for that, but they would come and pursue that. They felt, I don't know about you, but, and I've known this, I've been serving God for 51 years, and the closer I get to him, the more insecure I get. Because perfection, imperfection is trying to approach perfection. And all you see when you get close to God is the frailty of your humanity. That's why we come in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we come because his blood is upon the altar in heaven. Hallelujah. We come because of his righteousness. Come on, everyone. That's why I come and approach him. But in my own self, you feel the inadequacy. And you should. When the anointing is moving, that's what you should feel, your inadequacy. But it's not for you to withdraw from God, but it's to draw even closer to God. Hallelujah. Oh, God is so good. Say this out loud. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Amen. Praise the Lord. The Amplified, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, or the desert, preaching, I like this translation, preaching a baptism obligating repentance, a change of one's mind for the better, heartily amending one's ways with abhorrence of his past sins in order to obtain forgiveness of and release from sins. Now, I'm not even going to waste time on this, but maybe a couple of years ago, there were preachers standing up or four or five years, and they were saying, yeah, Jesus already took care of your sins. You no longer have to repent. And, uh, and to that, I say such pride and arrogance. Because anybody who knows God and anybody who ever wants a relationship with God um, feels that, that physical separation, the damning nature, not being able to approach God. That's why, again, we have a covenant with God because of Jesus Christ. Repentance in the Greek means reformation, a divine reversal inwardly. Repentance, the definition in the, um, 
encyclopedia said, to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life, to feel regret or contrition. In other words, returning to God, listen, with a deep inward conviction of shame for how we've thought, lived, acted, and talked. In Isaiah, the 55th chapter, we're just going to show you a couple examples in the Old Testament where God required repentance from his people. And sometimes, I don't know why, but uh, today, it it, 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 it may not be true, but it seems like today, the church just simply overlooks repentance. They don't deal with their own hearts. They set that aside to excuse themselves because the one that they're with um, uh, or the one that they have trouble with, obviously, they're the problem, not me. And so we live this life of self-denial regarding repentance. And we'll see from the New Testament how important it is. But here's Isaiah. God was petitioning Israel through the prophet Isaiah to return to him. It says, verse 6 of 55, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Seek ye the Lord. Seek ye. You have to take, you have to take the initiative. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye on him while he is near. Let the wicked... And he's addressing the Jews. Let the wicked uh, uh, Jew or the person who's in covenant with God forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return. And I wrote this down. You cannot return to a place you haven't been before. So that one time they were walking with God, but now they aren't. So he's petitioning them. Not beautiful. God is so loving. He just loves his people. He just wanted a fellowship with his people. It's return. He's a return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Through Malachi, God spoke again to Israel to return to him. I'm not going to read all this, but even from the days of your fathers, again, referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are gone away from my ordinances, and I've not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. And of course, he goes in and talks about where, where are we supposed to return? Well, in tithes and offerings. I'm not going to read it. You're familiar with that. You can read it as you go on. So returning and repentance go hand in hand. Repentance, again, is an inward adjustment that yields to the will of God at the cost of everything else. That is good. Repentance is an inward adjustment that yields to the will of God at the cost of everything else. No excuses. He won't accept any. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost preaching the resurrection power of Christ, the Holy Spirit was present to convict the hearts of those who believed in Peter's message. Just the first message preached out of the gate. 3,000 people got saved, and here's what it says. Now, when they, the people that were there that day, heard this, day, heard this Peter's message of salvation in Christ, they were stung. They were cut to the heart. One translation says they were pierced. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And what, uh, King James says, what must we do? And Peter responded with, repent, change your views and purpose to accept the will of God in your inner selves instead of rejecting it. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and release from your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift, of course, is salvation. But salvation couldn't come without repentance. Now, let me say this to you. The word salvation really has a four-part meaning. It's the Greek word sozo. It means rebirth of the human spirit. It means healing for your body. It means peace for your soul. 
And it means, and it means deliverance from evil. Amen. How many agree that you need all those in your life? Come on. It isn't just like saved, okay, born. It, it, it goes far deeper than that. So he, 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 was, he, was, um, he was encouraging, praise God. Peter was encouraging those that were convicted in their hearts to repent. And then you'd be forgiveness. You'd, have, you'd experience forgiveness and release from your sins. Hallelujah. Now, in the book of Revelation, very interesting. That was the first thing I thought of when these preachers were saying, oh, you don't have to repent, you know. Um, I, I'm constantly judging my heart on a daily basis and often repenting to God, telling him I'm sorry. You know what that does? That simply makes you more conscious of the frailty of your humanity. And, and not that you have to have a guilty conscience, but it, makes, you know, it, it, it should enrich your walk with God because you know yourself uh, that you are not always what you, know, you may display on one hour on Sunday morning. But because of God's love for you, praise God, you're able, to, you're able to make the adjustments on the inside so that you become more Christ. How many want to become more Christ-like in your life? So in the book of Revelation, there are five of the seven churches, the New Testament churches, were, were in trouble with God and being judged for three basic reasons. Number one, they lost their love, their first love. That was the church at Ephesus. Number two, they had become morally corrupt, the church in Thyatira. And number three, for having become self-righteous, self-ruling, and self-indulgent, which was the church at Laodicea. In fact, in Revelation 3.17, God said, now, now you're saying this. You say we are rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. When in reality, God exposed them for what they really were. Spiritually wretched, spiritually miserable, spiritually poor, blind, and naked. Isn't that, what a contrast. Come on, what a contrast. Think about it. We are rich, we are prosperous, we are blessed, and we have need of nothing. I mean, and God said, are you kidding me? Let me tell you how you really are. And I don't know about you, but I want God to be upfront with me and honest with me. Amen. So that I can benefit from it in the sense of being in right standing with God and always being in a position to be led by his spirit and be blessed by him. You know, there's, we live in a world of uh, 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 just such instability and crisis, but we can walk through it with the peace of God. Hallelujah. And with the leadership of his spirit. Everybody say, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Is it possible that these sins are the 21st century uh, church's sins that we're plagued with today. I, I really believe that they are. They are. The loss of our first love, morally cor moral corruption, and self-righteousness. Now to the New Testament church at Ephesus, God said this. Remember then from what heights, spiritually, you have fallen. Repent or change the inner man to meet God's will and do the works you did previously when first you knew the Lord. Or else I will visit you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you change your mind and repent. God said, I'm going to snuff out the light. There was one time, and I don't remember where it was, Pastor Vicky may know, but um, where God uh, literally wrote on his house, Ichabod. The presence of the Lord has departed. And man, I mean, all through the years of pastoring, there have been times I thought, God, 
I would never want to be in that position where your presence has departed from this church and all we have is a church of religiosity and no move of God's spirit. I don't want that. I believe you don't want that either. How many want a God, this uh, a presence of God in your church where he's moving and having his way? I want that in my life as well. In Revelation 2, this is to the church in Ephesus. Remember, I just read this, but I'm going to read it again. Remember then from what heights spiritually, I mean, they didn't even know how far they'd fallen. That you've fallen, repent, change the inner man to meet God's will, and do the works you did previously, previously, previously. Now, just stop for a moment, just, just for a moment, and think, just for a moment, what kind of passion you had for God when you first got saved. I mean, just stop for a moment and think about it. Raise your hand if you had passion for God when you got first saved. I mean, I mean, I, passion. I, they couldn't bridle me. They couldn't shut me up because you just cannot contain what God has done in your life at that moment. But over time, over the process of time, if you're not careful, all of a sudden, that passion and that love and that drive you had for God has dissipated to where people can't even tell if you're saved. Years ago, somebody said to me that he was working at a company for about 25 years, and one of the co-workers came to, to work on Monday morning and was at a special service and got gloriously saved. And so he, he shared with his co-worker how he's, he'd gotten glorious, gloriously saved, and his co-worker was ashamed because he'd been saved for 25 years, and the guy didn't even know it. Guy didn't even know it. That's not what we want. Can I have an amen? So to the spiritually lukewarm New Testament church in Laodicea, this is what God said. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell or reveal their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. He does. God loves us enough to want to discipline us or make our life so uncomfortable so that hopefully we're driven to our knees to leave all that stuff that is snaring us, all that stuff that is tripping us up and causing our lights to be snuffed out. He cares about us, so he's going to discipline us. Amen. Close your eyes and just say this. Lord, I ask you to discipline me for your glory. Amen. Hang on. No, he don't discipline you with car accidents and sickness and disease. He doesn't. He convicts you deep inside where you're, you really feel the shame of where you're at in your life. A deep shame, deep, deep guilt. That's good. Remorse, that's good. See, conviction, let me say this. Conviction is a gift from God. Because if you didn't feel conviction, you would never address the issues in your life. It, it's a gift from God, conviction. So don't avoid it, or you know, don't dismiss it, but yield to it. Let's go on. Look at this. I'll start over. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell, reveal their faults, convict, convince, and reprove, and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. So be enthusiastic and earnest 
and burning with zeal and repent or changing your mind and attitude. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone who's in the same spiritual condition in those churches are in this week, he's addressing all of them. If anyone, if you got, if this is, are you, if you're dealing with these moral issues, if you're dealing with a cold, calloused heart, if you're dealing with, you, you've completely lost your passion for God, he said, man, it, it, man, uh, I stand at the door. I'm knocking, right? I'm knocking on your, on your heart. If anyone hears and listens to me and, and he's my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and will eat, uh, I, will, I will eat with him and he will eat with me. Think, that's communion. That's, that's the Lord's Supper. That's communion. So then you see how loving and compassionate God is. He said, if your life is messed up, man, I'm knocking at the door. Open up, repent, and I'll come back in and commune with you and love you and bless you and forgive you and heal you and restore you. God, come on, give God praise. That, that is so wonderful, praise the Lord. So wonderful. This is New Testament. And I wrote this down. Did you notice in the scripture that Jesus is the one who initiates forgiveness and spiritual restoration? He who overcomes, verse 2, is victorious over his own pride and rebellion. I will grant him to sit beside me on my throne as I myself overcame or was victorious and sat down beside my father on his throne. He was able to hear, let him listen to and heed what the Holy Spirit says to the assembly churches. He's saying it to every church. Every church. In the book of James, the first chapter, James is addressing the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Here's what he says, verse 5. Does the scripture mean nothing to you that says, the spirit that God breathed into our hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us? Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit is an intense lover. He, he, he's not interested in you having spiritual sex with the world. He, he, he's not... He's, he's not going to play that game. But he is a jealous lover. The Bible says, uh, but he continues to pour more and more grace upon us. For it says, here's a scripture, God resists you when you are proud, but continually pours out grace when you're humble. And that's why I don't understand. There's so many services. We have opportunities to come forward to the altar. The altar is simply a place of self-sacrifice. It's the place where you're, you're so sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're so tired of self-righteousness. You're tired of hypocrisy. You're tired of phoniness. You just want to come and get right with God. And it's something that's missing. And maybe a lot of times it's our fault. Because we sometimes don't necessarily give the people time you know, to really get ministered to because we're all time conscious. We were talking here the other day and we first came here in 1981. Uh, there was a move of God's, it was a move of God's spirit. People were getting saved by the hundreds of thousands flocking out of every denominational church. Uh, every, I mean, they were flocking by the thousands getting saved. It was a move of God. Our services not maybe, you know, who, I mean, our services were no less than three hours long. I heard people take a grasp there. Did anybody pass out? They were three hours long. 
And it wasn't because we were wearing people. It was a move of, is that right? It was a move of God's spirit. I mean, people were just so, I don't know, you couldn't explain it. They just, they just wanted more. They wanted more. Uh, praise and worship would last an hour. You know, the word would last an hour and a half. I mean, it would just, nobody wanted to leave. It was a three-hour service. We had, we'll be out here at three o'clock. No, just. <laughs> My point is something, it wasn't simply... There was just that time period we were coming out of, you know, the hippie, you know, free sex, free love, and smoke a joint. You know, we were coming out of that, which, of course, we've seen today again. But we were coming out of that, uh, you know, and people were sick and tired of that kind of thing. And they were coming and flocking to God by the thousands. I'm believing for another move of God like that. Come on. Hallelujah. He's only going to give us what we expect, what we desire. Amen. So he goes on and says, for it says, God resists you when you are proud, but continually pours out grace when you are humble. So then surrender to God. Stand up to the devil and resist him, and he will flee in agony. Move your heart closer and closer to God, and he will come even closer to you, but make sure you cleanse your life. You sinners, he's talking to the church. And keep your heart pure and stop doubting. Feel the pain of your sin. Be sorrowful and weep. Let your joking around be turned into mourning and your joy into deep humiliation. Think about that. I mean, they got to a place where they, I mean, they got to a place where they just lived a no moral life and that was funny. They lived a disgusting life, immoral, ungodly, twisted, and made very light of it. Feel the pain of your sin. Be sorrowful and weep. Let your joking be turned into mourning and your joint to deep humiliation. Be willing to be made low before the Lord and he will exalt thee. Spiritual corrections, listen, in our lives are accomplished through repentance. And one of the most, and we're going to wind down with this story, one of the most wrenching stories I've ever read in the Bible. I've actually cried reading it. Was the story found, God recorded it for us in Psalms 51. And it's the story about David, we'll read in a second. What did David do? David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. He wanted God's will in his life more than anything. And yet we found out that he did, a, a, he, how many are grateful that your sinful life in on the front pages of Argus Leader? We used to call it the Argus Leader. I don't even know, is the Argus Leader even around anymore? Okay, and we always called it the Argus Liar. But anyway, uh, yeah, I'm grateful too. I am grateful. But in this case, it wasn't. For some, what, 5,000, 4,000 years, we've been reading about David and how David committed a horrific act against the God he loved so much. And why, what happened? Well, first of all, David, I, I, I thought this was so good, I wrote it down, uh, he wasn't where he was supposed to be, but was actually exactly where he planned to be. He wasn't where he's supposed to be on the battlefield with his men. He stayed back because he had planned to be where he wanted to be. That was on the rooftop where he could watch Bathsheba bathing. 
And it's very possible he had been watching her for quite some time. And why was she, on the, was she up there trying to seduce him? No. All men, the Bible says, all men were out to war. So Bathsheba, in her innocence and purity, was on the roof bathing. Okay? In fact, you'll find in the Bible, not once does she get blamed for David's transgression. But David pursued her. And it's amazing. Interesting. For some of you who don't know, physically, she, had all, she was already prepared to get pregnant. She was very vulnerable because of that state in her, in her, in her um, um, physical body. And so he took advantage of that. And of course, being the king, I mean, you know, you, you obey or you die. So she, he ended up committing adultery against her. Why was it adultery? What is adultery? It's having an intimate relationship with someone else that is married. And she was married to Uriah, his closest friend and military leader. And once he had committed the transgression, he tried to cover it up, tried to even call in Uriah to get him inebriated so he'd go home and have an intimate relationship with his wife. But he was so loyal to his men that he could not, I mean, there's no way that he could enjoy that kind of pleasure when his men are on the front lines fighting. This man was a man of great godly character. So what does David do? He plans a strategy to set him on the front lines. When he set Uriah on the front lines, he told other leadership to pull back, uh, and uh, Uriah was left by himself and was killed. So David not only committed adultery, he murdered Uriah. And one of the most touching, most touching stories was that when the prophet came to David to rebuke him, Uh, he tells him a story of a very wealthy man who had just thousands of sheep, wealthy, wealthy. And he had a guest that came. And there was another poor, poor man who just had one little sheep that he'd raised and treated that little sheep like a child, raised him and, and loved that little sheep. And, 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 the, and, and this uh, very wealthy man had, um, uh, didn't want to give up his sheep, so he took the only sheep that that, 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 man, that poor man had and, and killed that sheep. And David turned red and got so angry he says a man like that needs to be put to death and the prophet said Nathan said you're the man and I tell you right now only by the depths of God's mercy that he didn't drop dead at that very moment this is what happens when you allow just little places of compromise in your life And you see it today. You see Christians who at one time were so passionate on fire for God, they are living in the pit of hell morally. All I can say to that is God be merciful to them. I pray nothing more than that or nothing less than that. James 1 says this. I want to read this, and we'll read the story, and we'll wind this up. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted from God. For God is incapable of being tempted by what is evil, and he himself tempts no one. But every person, he's writing to the church, every Christian, every believer, is tempted when he's drawn away, enticed and baited, listen, by his own evil desire, his lust and his passions, 
Then the evil desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully matured brings forth death. So don't be misled, brethren, or sisters. Every one of us have to, on a daily deal, daily basis, uh, have to deal with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The word lust means this. Yeah, the lust, first of all, it's insatiable. You can't satisfy it. I don't care how much nudity you look at, how much pornography that you know, you're trying to uh, quench your thirst. It's, it's impossible. It's insatiable, number one. And the word lust means for, um, um, longing for that which is forbidden. That's what the word lust means. Longing for that which is forbidden. And Jesus set us free so we wouldn't have to be dealing with the forbidden things. I asked the Lord years ago, many years ago, 2006, driving down my, I'm just telling you the truth now, I was not dealing personally with this issue, issue, but I was asking God about it in regards to other people that I were dealing with. I said, Lord, what is the key to overcoming lust? So what is the key? He spoke to me. He's so beautiful. He spoke to me in my spirit as loud as I'm talking to you. And I'd never heard this before. He said, you must starve it. That's what he said. You must starve it. Four words. And when I heard that, I said out loud, but Lord, you're going to have to show me from the scriptures regarding this. So I sat down and I wrote 200 pages on the subject of lust within two weeks. What it is, where it is in the Bible, and how to overcome it. And you must starve it. It's always there, it will always be there, but you can conquer it. It does not have to conquer you. Come on, give God praise for that. Give God praise for that. Amen. No, the reason I say that, it's not like it was many, many years ago. Today, women have just as much problem with uh, sexual immorality as men do. And so it's on both sides. And uh, I want to be free from all that. I, I want it to be under my feet. Come on, everyone. I want it to be, and so do you. Praise the Lord. That was free. Ed Cole said this. You want to put this statement up? This is the most powerful statement I've ever heard uh, regarding this subject. Lust takes at the expense of others to satisfy self, while love gives at the expense of self to benefit others. Is that powerful? There's, there it is right there. Lust takes at the expense of others to satisfy self, but love gives at the expense of self to benefit others. Is that powerful or what? It's true. All right, let's go to Psalms 51. Are you enjoying this this morning? Are you learning something this morning? I just, we're here just to help you. We're here to help you. All right, look at Psalms 51. This is the King James for all you King James lovers. Psalms 51, have mercy, you got to hear his heart now. He's just, he's committed, no. Listen, not only did he commit adultery and kill a man, but all of his kids except for Solomon, the curse came upon them. One of his kids had a raped his sister, died. Sister was never normal again, healed from that. 
two of the other brothers, three, four sons out of the four, three of them died. Excuse me. The little boy died that Bathsheba gave birth to, and two of his sons died, and his daughter was messed up morally. Look what the transgression of one man put upon the family. That's why I've said it a thousand times, when Satan attacks your life, he's after your seed. And I don't know how much you love your seed, but bless God, Vic and I love our seed. We love our family and our grandchildren. We'll do everything we can to keep the devil out of their lives. So here's the cry of a man who's been completely broken and has lost so much. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Plural. He knew what he did. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only, God, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. This is where the seed grows. God, remember that. The seeds of perversion start here, but that you, you meditate on them and they drop into the heart and then they come to fruition. I just want you to know how it works. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear my joy. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. O God, created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. You know, when you first get saved, you're so excited. You're so thrilled because your sins are forgiven. You know for the first time you've been liberated from the devil. Hallelujah. And you can't contain yourself. And then later on we come to church. We're so heavy laden with the transgressions of this world. We cannot shake them off. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Oh God, deliver me from blood uh, guiltiness. Thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Oh Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. And delight us not in burnt offerings. See, God, God, God wants everything about you. He just doesn't want an excuse. Here, here, here's the last two verses. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to stop there. God wants a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart is what pleases him. I want you to bow your head. We're going to pray today. Musicians, you can come forward. Crystal, 
Can you put that last verse up there for me as the musicians are coming? This is Luke 18. Luke 18, if you got it there, sister. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Watch this. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Oh, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. What a, what a puke. Excuse me, let's go on. I, fa- I, I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Father. I worship you. Thank you, God. So here we are today. The message of repentance, I promise you, will be the message of the latter days. Meaning God getting his people ready for his return. Thank you for listening to today's message. We'd love for you to join us for our Sunday morning service at 930 as well as our midweek service on Wednesday nights at 7. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.